You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. For someone to explain. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Okay, thanks for joining us for episode number four of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. Um, joined today with uh, a very special guest, uh, Mark Upton. Mark is from Adelaide in South Australia, and after 12 years of working in coaching and sports science at a professional Aussie Rules Club, uh, he took up his current position as the coaching science manager at the English Institute of Sport early in 2014. His current role, uh, Mark works closely with UK sports world-class coach development programs and has a brief to help coaches optimize their practice and learning environments in regards to decision-making, performing under pressure, technical change and developing problem-solving athletes. I did some uh, professional development with Mark uh, two years ago when he was back in Australia and I was there for a short trip and uh, I I learned so much in that that very short period of time so it was was natural for me to ask him to come onto the show. Um, So really happy to have you on board, Mark, and thanks for joining us. Not a problem, Andy. More than happy to have a chat and, and looking forward to it, Matt. Awesome. So, um, unfortunately, your your background is Aussie rules. Um, <laughs> so, um, tell, tell me a bit about your backstory with regards to you know sport, education, previous roles, up, up until your current role uh, in England. Yeah, well, growing up in, in Adelaide in South Australia, so in the southern states, Aussie rules, rightfully so, is the... Uh, <laughs> Premier football code. Um, so uh, yeah, that that was what I was heavily influenced by. Not so much. I pl- I played a bit, uh, never at any great level. Um, but yeah, certainly as a as a observer and um, fan of the game, I suppose that was number one. But yeah, I was just generally interested and in, and in got involved. You know, just casually, if you like, in a number of ball sports in particular. Um, how did then things from a professional point of view, did a sports science degree at University of South Australia, then was pretty fortunate to get an opportunity at, uh, yeah, at the Adelaide Football Club, so one of the two Australian rules clubs in Adelaide, so I didn't even have to move, which was, which was nice, um, and that gave my start um, in more the, the I guess traditional sports science area, which is fitness condition conditioning and and that aspect, but then evolved into more performance analysis, uh, skill acquisition through some um, links we had with the Australian Institute of Sport, and then just more into coaching and and towards the end of my time there, a bit of coach development, um, which by that time I was also doing some consulting in coach development and and skill act, um, which is how we sort of ended up having a chat, Andy, yeah, uh, and then got the role. Yeah, at the EIS sort of about 18 months ago um, in coaching science, which is a new role, which sort of captured a lot of, I guess, what I've done in the past, as well as some some other areas into a lot of actually trying to better understand this whole caper of coaching. What is expert coaching? How do you develop expert coaches and and all those sort of things? So, yeah, it's really interesting and and enjoying the time with the family over in the UK. Fantastic. And you've got the Rugby World Cup coming up, so you can, uh, yes, you can get immersed in the, the great game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, going to be, uh, well, <laughs> really interesting. I mean, I'm, I enjoy watching all sporting events. So whilst I can't say that I'm a out-and-out rugby fan, um, it's going to be fantastic, yeah, over the next few weeks for sure. Great. 
Um, okay, so going on, you, you mentioned coach development there a number of times. Um, what what do you think are the biggest challenges in terms of coach, more, more so coach education today with regards to skill acquisition? There's probably been a number of challenges in the area and skill acquisition has probably struggled in terms of its identity, if you like. Yep. And one of the reasons is who owns it. So whilst it's got a scientific and theoretical basis, it's obviously relates to core coaching business, if you like, in terms of the practice sessions and developing athletes or players' technical and tactical skills. And so for I think just starting there is why it's, it's then struggled to maybe make an impact. And then in terms of coach education, probably a lot of coach education programs and coach educators don't really have a great awareness of it either, so it tends to get skipped over or, or very lightly touched on. But I think that's changing quite quickly. And then the interesting one, we, we talk about coach education being formal learning. Yeah. I think where we're seeing change and momentum grow is more informal learning. Um, and, and I'll use things like Twitter and as, as an example, and I've had probably a handful of coaches mention to me now how they find Twitter a really useful resource, particularly with some of the skill act. Uh, content and, and sort of getting up to speed with some of that and, and then try, trying some of it out in their own practice sessions. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I, I follow you on Twitter and you, you've got, you put out some great stuff all the time. So there's, there's a wealth of information out there for sure. Yeah. Um, so in terms of skill acquisition, what, what do you feel are some of the, the key concepts that coaches who, you know, Everyone talks skill acquisition, but the, the actual meat and bones of it, what are some of the key concepts that, that coaches need to understand about it? Yeah, well, it's funny, only today I've been um, drafting up something to almost explain what skill acquisition is, because whilst in its literal term you think skill, and so maybe it's just you know the technique of passing or kicking, mm -hmm. it is really broad, um, and it's, you know, it's that old, I guess that saying that skill is decision-making, plus the movement or the action under some sort of time pressure or other pressures, anxiety, fatigue, um, those sorts of things. So, yeah, if we look at skill from that point of view, it deals with all of those things. Yep. So, you know, as I guess the certain fields in science evolve as well, it's, you know, like how, what does neuroscience have to say about the brain and decision-making and, what, you know, how do we move and best learn to move and there's a, there's a whole lot. Um, that sits under it, but generally it's about you know perceptual skills, so players' ability to pick up on cues or information in the environment, which obviously then forms decision making, um, as well as their ability to adapt their movement um, or actions to then to fit the context. I I try to stay away from actually using the word technique. Yep. As technique, I think we we get too fixated on that in isolation. So I like to talk a lot about adaptive movement, which yeah. is underpinned by perceptual and decision-making skills. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that term, adaptive movement. Um, and just on, on the perception side of things, I remember the work we did to, to, together, you talked a lot about the, uh, the perception-action coupling. Are you able to explain that in a bit more detail? Yeah, so I guess there's... If, Probably what we start to understand about learning and, and learning a task is, again, historically, and if we look at that technique approach, we're just focused on the action and worried about developing the action or technique and assuming that will transfer, if you like, then into different tasks or different environments where there's suddenly decisions being made and, and we have to perceive 
you know, positioning of teammates, opponents, and it's a dynamic environment. But what we're probably learning is is learning is task specific, and and what makes it specific is the information available in the environment when we learn. Yeah. So obviously, there's a need to perceive that. So. As I said, learning a pass or a kick in isolation is not the same as learning it when I also have to perceive movement of teammates in opposition. And it's not to say there's no transfer, but it seems you might get better transfer or more efficient use of your time by maintaining this perception and action coupling um, right. is, it, is one way to explain it. So, so would you say then like in terms of practice design, uh, coaches should be attempting to try and make their practice sessions look as much like the game as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that that's it's. You know, we always got to be careful of simplifying things too much. But I think that is a you know a fair simplification of of that term. Is it is try to trying to make practices realistic and what makes them realistic? Yeah, is the presence of of attackers, defenders, and Whilst in some phases of rugby and other team sports it's highly structured, a lot of the time it's it's unstructured or uncertain in a way, isn't it? So we do have to perceive these things and, and adapt our movements. They're not not too pre-planned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like the restarts of the rugby game, kickoffs, drop kicks, um, scrums, and lineouts. They're they're very very structured. But then yeah. after that, in open play, um, every every scene that you see is is completely different. That's right. At, at some scale, so we'd say at a sometimes if you, I guess if you zoom out, you see common patterns emerging at a broader level. But it's down sometimes actually at those micro levels, like when players just see a gap to run through or positioning of of an opposition player, one foot slightly positioned in front of another means they might not be able to change to a certain direction as quick. It's those small little differences that. The expert players are probably really what we call attuned to, yeah. sensitive to, perceive well, and obviously, and if being able to exploit those little things and those little gaps is what then creates the bigger change and bigger openings for scoring or or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of one of the other things we talked about was um, block practice versus random practice, and and mm-hmm. how blocked you can get some initial bang for your buck, but the long term is is not that great. But whereas random, it's a a little bit messy, but it's far more sustainable. Can you, can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the, a rule of thumb, and I guess some studies do support that, that random, which is maybe practising a variety of skills in a random way, as the term suggests, the the success rate, completion rate, execution rate, whatever you want to describe, might not be as high as if you to just block a whole lot of passing. Um, mm-hmm. But... If we turn again to about tra- transfer and the other's concept of retention is is sometime later, then potentially that random practice actually the performance is higher, um, is transferred and retained better than than the block practice. As as a rule of thumb, there's always exceptions as well, but that's that's what would go on. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the I think that's across all sports is a lot of coaches really strive for that perfect looking practice where, where everything looks great and you know the old coach coach saying at the end we're not leaving until we get this right kind of thing but but often it needs yeah. to look messy right yeah exactly and i know there's a quote from graham henry actually if you do want to make it rugby specific to, yep. to say hey, that's that's you know obviously a number of years ago but that's sort of what they started to stump 
people on themselves with the All Blacks was that that random, more chaotic training. In his his words, resulting in better longer term learning, which yeah. is what he means there is that transfer and retention. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, great. Um, so so for so for people who are new to um, kind of these terms or new to trying out different different techniques, or often often you start coaching the way you were coached. Um, what what would you advise them to do in terms of uh, trying to trying to accelerate uh, skill acquisition in their sessions? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. That the yeah, how do you accelerate it? Because one of the challenges with with learning sometimes is it does take time. Mm. I think a good starting point comes back to one of the good old fashioned skills of coaching is observation. Yeah, and really working out whether it's an individual player or or a unit or the team as a whole. You know, what is what we call that rate limiter? What is really stopping them from being better at a skill or better at a tactical concept, you know, is it their perceptual skill? Are they not? Are they missing cues? Are they not scanning? Is it to do with you know they're limited in the range of passes they can maybe execute, which is you know narrowing their options. So I think it actually starts with really good observation, yeah. and then if you if you get a clear idea of what is the problem rather than just a cliche type answer. I think then you're in a good place to apply some of these skill app principles around designing your practice session. And, you know, from there, sometimes you see really dramatic and quick improvement. Other times it still, you know, takes time to see that transfer into a match environment. And at some time you might have to come back and just think, am I, you know, is this really working? Do I need to mix up? mix it up or, or try something different. So it's, it's still that, if you want to describe that art or what I call that complexity of coaching where there's no guarantees mm. but I think there's sort of a, some principles you can follow. Yeah, and I think, I think a lot of coaches think that coaching is like paint by numbers that, you know, if you get, if you get the sequence right, then you, the results will come. But mm. it's, it's so dynamic team to team and the opposition and the environment you're coaching. So, yeah, that's, that's great advice. One one of the other things we talked about uh, was uh, constraints uh, led approach to yep. uh, to to practice. What, can you explain that a little bit more and kind of some, maybe some examples of how how that might work? Yeah, well, I think th- this is one uh, thing about this before, Andy. Actually, it's probably hard just to talk about it. So mm. maybe I can give you a couple of links that you can yeah, try absolutely. the podcast so people can read and maybe see the diagram and visualize a little bit more yep. and, and in, a, in a way sometimes I describe it as what good coaches have or have probably done for a while anyway it's sometimes described as a bit more hands-off coaching so um, a constraint I think I normally start with what is a constraint well I guess it's a boundary but it it more dictates maybe what a player can't do rather than prescribing what they can or should do okay and it maybe sounds like a subtle difference, but it makes a makes a big it actually makes a big difference. So, and obviously we're constrained in, in different ways. And the three high level categories in the constraints model is the task, the individual, personal player, and the environment, mm-hmm. which could be the physical properties of the okay. environment, like the hardness of the surface, or the, or rain or wind. But also, and probably even in, where I think this is really interesting is the social and cultural environment as well. Yeah influences your immediate actions and performance and also your learning and development longer term. So so the easiest way to think about constraints, so individually, 
anatomically we're constrained with how we can move. Yep. So we've only got, whilst we've got lots of ways we can move, but there are certain things that are physically impossible for humans to move or do. And so that's an example where that's a boundary where there's lots we can do, but there's a certain few things we can't. And if you say task constraints, well, every sport's got task constraints because there's things called rules. Yeah. So in rugby, you can't pass forward. But that still means there's a lot, hell of a lot of ways and directions you can pass. Mm-hmm. So it's so it's this idea of it creates boundaries, and a coach will skillfully in practice manipulate those constraints, particularly tasks like pitch size and number of players and rules and how you can score, and those things to sort of shape and guide learning outcomes and development for players. But it, it gives the player space to search and explore probably for, for the solutions that suit them best. So rather than prescribe the perfect technique or the one tactical option, in the longer term done well, it does develop these really adaptable players because they have more than um, one trick up their sleeve, if you like. Um, so that that's a quick, you know, snap. Show as best I could describe, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And like, would, you, would you say like a, a games-based approach lends itself well to... Yeah, uh, constraints. Exactly. So, whilst constraints led approach doesn't have to just be games, mm-hmm. it obviously is closely so. That's what underpins a you know a games based approach and small sided games because you are manipulating certain task constraints there. But it could still be a a drill, as what we'd more classically call a drill. Yeah. Um, and you might again manipulate the rules or constrain it in certain ways so that there is still this variability or some randomness to it rather than it being blocked and just repetitive constant repetition so um, you know that's where I I think it's important to make that distinction is constraints are everywhere really yeah and they're not specific to just games based or drill based approach right so so a way of maybe using it in rugby might be that you know post post match evaluation it was it was determined that you know, long pass accuracy was was poor in that game, mm-hmm. um, and then maybe you'd set up a game situation where you've got full width of the field, and maybe you have to create a rule that you have to pass it three times or something to score a point or, or something along the lines of that. Would that be kind of going down yeah, that exactly, way? Yeah. exactly. And and so we, I think that's a good example where if we think it's more of a specific skill we want to work on, so passing and, and long passing in particular, mm-hmm. is how do we constrain a game or a drill to get enough of that, but what we call, we use the term repetition without repetition. Yeah. To mean that actually it can emerge in all different situations and you know the the pass can be made at varying speeds of the ball carrier and speeds of the receiver and angles and all those things hopefully you if you, th- you know this is where the thinking comes in there's no recipes or answers you've got to think about this as a coach how you design something like that to achieve yeah. it so i think i like you know ever since the work i've done with you like um just experimenting with the constraints based approaches it's it's so much fun as a coach, you know. You get to yeah. you, you don't need to go on YouTube and look up a magic drill that's going to be the silver bullet. You, you you create it yourself, and then you know, oh, that one didn't work, so I'm going to change it this way and try again. And then all of a sudden, you've you've got you know, fifteen twenty kind of games yeah. and constraints based approaches that are, that are actually really work well, and the, the kids love it, and it's you know, there's success as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's good to hear that, mate. That that's that's the case because that's certainly yeah, I think a ideal outcome. You know, we talk about creativity in players, but mm. for coaches as well, it allows them to apply their creativity exactly how you described. Yeah, you, you certainly build up. You certainly find out what doesn't work. But, it, but for me, that's really good because you're mirroring the players' learning as well. Sometimes yeah. you get it wrong. You often learn as much from from what doesn't work as what does. So that's you know that's actually I think even you know more helpful or, or beneficial. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think the other thing is to say that just by I guess almost having a lens to look through in terms of some of these skill act principles or constraints that approaches, it doesn't mean you can't steal, borrow, copy other people's games yeah. or drills but what you can do is start to critique them a bit more and say right does it tick these boxes mm. perception action coupling variability those types of things players having to make decisions and and adapt movement so you can sort of just assess them and, and if it stands up well yeah by all means you can you know steal it yeah absolutely i think 90 percent of my stuff is stolen in some way so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um okay so just going just going back a little bit to block practice for example um going staying on passing catch passing again the classic mm-hmm. one is in, in rugby is uh guys getting four lines they they run up the field and they pass it with no opposition off yeah. to another group of four coming the other way yeah, um, yeah. and there might be some stationary blocked work before that on technique and things like that Mm-hmm. Is is there room for block practice in 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 sessions? And if so, what kind of ratio um, kind of should we be looking at as coaches? Uh, again, that probably comes back to what I said. I, there's not necessarily a definitive answer for that. Mm. But I more take the approach of um, uh, work <laughs> from as far away from that. Start as far away from that as you can. Yep. Over time, if you still think after, again, observing well, critiquing, trying different things, that the only thing that might get a change is to do some block practice, well, yeah, okay, give it a go. But don't be fooled just because the block practice looks nice on on the day or during the session. Mm. Still, you still got to be critical with yourself and say, well, has it improved something, you know, on match day and, and consistently over matches? So, yeah, that's, a, that's what I say. I, I wouldn't say don't do it, but it's mm. probably... Yeah, almost use it as a last resort um, yeah, and don't do too much of it. Might do a bit of blocked, then put it back ideally into more of a game context as soon as you can. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, because I think if if the pass, if you pass from one player to another and the pass is accurate and the person catches it, like who really cares what it looks like? If it's yeah, a yeah. And, and we're doing see, what I've seen, I've seen it. Many times, lots of sports, you do too much of that. What happens is players basically switch off their perception or perceptual skill. Okay, just throwing a pass. They're not. They're not having to perceive, scan, read mm. the play, look for, you know, where's the defender or defender's position, where's the space. It's just they run on autopilot, which yeah. is what you want. So this, this, we don't actually want to get into an automated process. We want to continually be in what we might just call it the technical term metastable but which is means yes we want some stability but we always need to be able to be adapting as well and changing from a a stable base okay great yeah that's really helpful um so then i suppose the big the next question is you've 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 applied these principles you've 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 trialed some and and you know it might be a pre-season period or something like that and then there's, a, there's an actual game. What are some of the, the ways that coaches can measure 
whether what they're doing in the practice is actually transferring to the game. Yeah, I mean, this is it would be a good discussion all on its own, I guess, and, and particularly coming into performance analysis. Yeah, and I think you know some some of the measures would, that would typically be taken are okay as indicators. Yeah, but they still probably then require digging into and looking at the video footage to you know to draw your conclusions and work out what's working or, or what's not. So. Um, yeah, it's sort of like process or outcome. I think to get into the process, like you could start looking and, and counting, if you like, how often players scan or look away from the ball. Yep. That's always one thing for me when I watch rugby, you know, say the ball's in the breakdown or something is, yeah, fair enough, there's a few guys who are fairly occupied in a physical combat. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guys standing around who should be looking away from the ball that just seem to watch the ball. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's sort of like depending what you're working on, if that's your focus, well, you know, you could could start to count those things. Um, but again, I, I, yeah, um, but I think there's always got to be a balance and be careful with with how you use the data. And skill and learning is a hard thing to measure. Mm, okay. So don't, don't get too caught up in trying to – I think you'd, you'll get lost down a rabbit hole if you're yeah. trying to get too complicated with how you measure stuff. Yep. So work out some higher-level measures and data to collect, but then back yourself to mix that in with your own observations as a coach. Yeah. And a previous guest uh, that we had on, Stuart Armstrong, he also said um, he likes to measure more so attitudes on the field. Like, um, you know, uh, is there intent to do the skill correctly rather than was it correctly? I think you you risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater if you you try and get a a black-and-white picture there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That I think, yeah, you, as I said, you just the, it's almost like the harder you try, the worse it gets because you mm. think try, end up collecting more data that doesn't really have any value, and you just you know you spiral negatively. So, yeah, absolutely. But but I like as you would say, I like that. Think a bit more creatively about what you might look at, observe, measure, um, and you know the old saying, well, what is important? What do you value? Try to come up with a way of evaluating that well, which could be through data and measurement or could just be through some good observation yeah, as yeah. well as players' feedback. Don't yeah. have that. That's potentially your most powerful source of information is how players are feeling and what their perceptions are. Yeah, yeah absolutely. wanted to uh, talk then about what, what are some other methods that, that coaches can use um, to try and you know accelerate this learning. Accelerate is probably the wrong word, but... I know we talked a little bit about uh, using analogies um, yep. and those kind of things. What are what are what are some areas they could they could use as well? Yeah, so I guess we've talked mainly about the uh, with constraints and, and those sort of things. The practice design is actually designing the activities, whether yeah. it's the game or drill. But I guess the coach in terms of instruction and feedback. Yeah. So yeah, and analogies particularly. So again, it's not black and white, but there's a suggestion that. Uh, to instruction that gets players to focus too much on specific body parts and movements, like hold your, you know, hold your hands this way or your arms should move like that, might actually be detrimental. And of course, it's, it directly conflicts with what we might say is traditional coaching. Yeah, she's very much like that, which is interesting. But it's not all; it's not blanket, but generally. So that's where. They talk, say that's an internal focus and maybe we should be trying to generate an external focus, which is can you make the ball spin a certain way um, or analogies, which you know a lot of coaches, uh, like, and like you said earlier, and it's 
um, not a case of um, stealing others, coming up with your own sort of analogies and, and kit bag of analogies that might be effective for certain techniques um, that sort of take the focus away from uh, the body so much, um, yeah, and, and, and putting a focus either externally or just giving them literally that picture to focus on. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. And I think, I think definitely with rugby, the flight of the ball can be a, a, a clear focus uh, for sure. And, and uh, you can get really creative with some of the analogies you can, you can come up with too. Yeah, exactly. And probably, and this is where, uh, so if we're, say, talking about kicking um, and uh, conversion kicking for goal, those sorts of things, Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably where it's most pronounced and proven in terms of a concept they call quiet eye, which tends to be where you focus your attention and and visual visual search and for how long tends to dictate how accurately you then kick. So, you know, it would be pretty common now and, like, I guess the... Um, examples with the Johnny Wilkinson in terms of picking the lady holding the coke can, yeah, the goals. So that's that. That's that. Unfortunately, wide eye. That was that was unfortunate for Australia. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have mentioned that. Should I? <laughs> uh, he's a legend. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, but but that again, that reinforces actually what we might call having more of an external focus. Yeah. Than if he was worried about you know what's the angle of my foot. Yeah, on contact. Contacting the ball. So it's it's a process what they call of actually letting the body self-organise. So it's got this propensity actually to be able to self-organise without you trying to consciously control it too much, given enough, you know, practice and exposure to that task. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Another thing I've been playing around with a lot in the last couple of years too is um, as a phys ed teacher, we were always – always told through university, like, focus on three key coaching points and, and keep referring that. And I've actually started doing a lot where it's just one thing that I focus on with the kids uh, or the guys I coach. And I'm finding that really helps. And, again, going to passing, I might just, I might just again, like, just focus on the flight of the ball or just focus on how, how my arms look once I've released the ball. Um, what do you think about that in terms of, like, actually reducing the amount of Content coaches give players compared to like increasing it. Yeah, I think again, as a, as a general rule, it's probably pretty reasonable advice. We probably all do err on, or certainly all get tempted to to probably cram too much uh, in there in terms of whether it's you know learning objectives and what you're supposed to get out of the activity or or the actual amount of instruction during. So. Mm. Yeah, less is more is, is probably a, a, a good thing to think about. I think the other thing um, to consider is uh, on the feedback side as well, I think is, is self-selected feedback. Yep. That's basically where you're putting the ownership and responsibility on the players to seek out feedback when they feel they need it. Mm-hmm. So that starts for me, I've used that a bit and, and, and spoken to coaches about it and it, and it tends to work really well once players realise that actually the coach is genuine, that they're going to pretty much let me try and work it out and and unless I go and ask them, they're not necessarily going to give me too much feedback and instruction. Yeah. So it works well because then when they come to you as a coach, it's great because you know they're genuinely engaged in whatever it might be and that sort of allows them to play as to dictate their own objectives or what they're trying to get out. So you as a coach don't have to feel like you're explicitly covering it all. So 
I think that's what can potentially be quite a powerful thing as well. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good one. I like that one, and that's kind of like when they do come to you. By the time they've come to you, they've obviously struggled um, yeah. to get to that point. So, and that's where the learning happens during that struggle. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah. some great advice. And then, and again, there's it's not always a panacea. As in, some players will you know, for various motivational and personality reasons will come to you almost for reassurance and just to be, to get a pat on the back Mm -hmm. type of thing. So, you know, but that's just knowing your players and sort of working through that a little bit and you'll start to sense, you know, what their motivations are. Mm. Um, But in general, I think it can be quite effective. Okay, great. Um, All right. So, so with the, you're now working with some fairly high performance uh, coaches in a a very high performance environment. Um, Yeah. What, what do you find are, are some of the things that people struggle with in that environment in terms of applying uh, this kind of stuff or, or are the coaches that are coming in, are they, are they already on board with that or do you get like a, a, a mixed, mixed bag of people who coach in say like an inverted commas traditional style compared to um, something a bit more contemporary? Yeah, I think it, it, it really is a mix uh, and it's been, I mean, probably should start with my own learning as well. It's been- been really good for me to start to have to work in non-team sports as well. Yeah. Uh, um, so working across a, a, a handful of different Olympic sports has okay. been great for my learning as well, and being being really useful. When yeah, but there are there are common themes as in what you you know what we class as traditional methods. Interestingly, do seem to run through <laughs> all different types of sports and coaching. They exist. So it's really interesting to look at the social and cultural reasons for that, but that's a, a separate issue. Um, but, but I find that they're more and more receptive. The, the challenge is, I think, in a high performance right at the top end mm-hmm. is buying enough space sort of to go into a learning phase where, like we sort of addressed earlier, you don't necessarily see change quickly. Yeah. In some cases where you may see a decrement in performance. So you might feel like you're actually taking a couple of steps backwards before you can go forwards again and sometimes a high-performance environment so um, tightly wound to results and immediate performance isn't conducive to that. So they're they're all the sort of the balance and tensions that you sort of got to work through in in that environment, which is why, um, and, and so, you know, for the example that, the, the group you're coaching, Andy, is why the pathway and talent pathway, I think, getting this these ideas into there could have a massive impact. Mm, yeah. I think if that was all cohesive and lined up, you know, from a, a kid coming through from, say, 12 through to 20, you would, you know, there, there's the space to let learning happen. I know coaches still too often get preoccupied with the results and winning, but there is the opportunity, I think, to really create a good environment. Yeah, almost like a safe environment to make mistakes. Yeah. And again, that was what Stuart Armstrong from the RFU talked about is, um, yeah, let, let them make the mistakes there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, as I said, there's still, you know, there's still, there's still challenges with that and sometimes it's the players themselves. So, uh, you know, I've, I've seen examples, again, heard from coaches quite scarily at times actually of coaching nine, 10-year-olds who – the coach tries to use a game-based approach and the, and the nine-year-old saying, why aren't we doing the drills like my mate over in the other team? Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, that becomes, yeah, in my world, scary, scary stuff. Yeah. I think that was one. You might have put it out on Twitter, actually. It's uh, 
a kid being asked what's dribbling uh, in in terms of soccer, and the kid said, "Oh, that's what you do around cones." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I can't. No, it wasn't me, but yeah, yeah I, I can. I recall that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's great. Thanks, thanks, Mark. Um, for, for coaches like moving forward, um, firstly, like, um, what are, what are some resources they could they could um, use use as reference materials? I know um, Lynn Kidman. Uh, from New Zealand's got a got a, a great book. Uh, I think it's called Developing Decision Making or something along those lines. Do you have any yes. others that are that are right up there? Yeah, well, Lynn's fantastic. So anything, I think she's got at least a couple of books out, if not more, probably more. Um, she's worth looking at. I mean, we we mentioned Twitter early on, um, and I'm sure Andy, if people followed you, you could maybe point them in the direction of others to follow. Yeah. Um, to be honest, if it's things now, you've maybe heard some specific terms like constraints that approach. Probably just googling those will yep. turn up some reasonable articles now. Um, and then after that, you're into more of maybe like the the textbooks that offer theory and 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 practical examples. So uh, depending on you know your enthusiasm for the topic, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, and I think what we'll do, like you mentioned earlier, I'll. Um I'll, I'll get some some links and resources, um, and we can put that in the show notes so so yeah. people can access that and and take that next step. Um, yeah. All right, great. And if people want to follow you on on Twitter, what's your what's your Twitter um, details? Uh, it's uppy one u double p y zero one. Okay, great. And um, yeah, you're you're prolific on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tend to um, do my best work at eleven o'clock at night. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's on, unfortunately, it's on Twitter, which might be a sad reflection of things. Um, <laughs> no, but there's great but, stuff. Uh, yeah, Twitter. I do. Yeah, actually, I do enjoy it again as as much. Well, I think hopefully it helps some others, but actually, it's, oh, yeah. it's really good for my own development because you get some good conversations and come across some interesting stuff that just forces you to think, which. Yeah, I think is a, is a good thing generally. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I, know, I get a lot of value out of out of what you're putting out, so it's great. Um, and you've you've also just recently started up a a project um, called My Fastest Mile. Do you, yeah. what, what's that about? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's with a guy that actually was also the EIS's head of talent science, so Al Smith. So yep. uh, he's not with the EIS anymore, so he's gone out on his own, and and we're sort of working on this on. Um, yeah, this uh, My Fastest Mile, which doesn't really have anything to do with running or athletics, actually. It's more about striving to, to be your best, yep. continually doing that. And so we're about trying to trying to help people do that. And and particularly whilst I work at, yeah, the more the high performance end, it's actually <coughs> younger people in sport, uh, participants in sport, and, and trying to help create the best learning environments. And, and so coaches are tightly wound up into that. Um, but just look at, you know, thinking how can we create the best environments that help young people to be their best, you know, as, as sporting participants but also um, that might transfer across into other areas of their life, which, you know, is, is not, not unique. There's a heap of people doing some stuff. But, um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to try a couple of things. Okay, great. And uh, how, how would people find out more information about that? Uh, so, yeah, just uh, myfastestmile.com. Okay, fantastic. So, all right, that sounds great. I'll uh, I'll definitely check that out myself. Yeah. All right. Um. So so to close off the show, we um we ask a, a series of questions. Usually they're rugby related, but 
Um, you're from a non-rugby background, so I just wanted to. So I'll just make it general. Um, Very kind of you. Mate. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, as when when you were a kid growing up, what who were who were some of your your favourite athletes that got you interested in sport and things like that? Um, well, probably I think as a, as a basketball follower through the '90s, it was hard, I guess, not to be uh, captured by Michael Jordan's efforts. So yeah, yeah. he was he was certainly up there. Um, yeah, in a range of other sports, I'm trying to think. Oh, cricket actually it would be interesting. Some of your followers might not be too aware of cricket. You'd be Dean Jones was a favourite oh, of mine. Love him, love him. Yeah, I think a lot of people our age probably did. End. Yeah. yeah. Um, in cricket, uh, who else? Uh, in uh, actually, in Aussie rules, I didn't really have any standout favourite players, mm-hmm. but probably Jordan was the that was the clear one for me. Yeah, and it's a it's a great story too. Like you just like the the work ethic of of, yeah. of the guy. It's un- unbelievable. Yeah, uh, great. Okay, and and currently, uh, who who do you who do you like watching running around now? Yeah, uh, probably. The, I think it's. You know who I would probably respect the most is Roger Federer. It's yeah. hard. I think every time I think of him, just the word class mm. comes to mind. I yeah, think he sure. personifies it in every way you can think about that. Um, he's great to watch, and you know, even even just recently, almost well, made the final, didn't he, of the U.S. Open? I think yeah. the other thing that impresses me with talk, sort of had a theme of learning today is he represents that as well. You know, even his new tactic of basically rushing the net off a return of serve. Mm. Um, you know, something he just was experimenting with and and uh, thought he'd have a go at. So, you know, I, lo- I love that mindset, arguably the greatest player in the world, yet he's still got that sort of growth and, and learning mindset, um, which is fantastic. Mm, fantastic. Yeah, it reminds me of Pat Rafter too, that, that's a volley game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. Um, okay, and, and coaches who are kind of, I suppose, more have more of a public profile, who are some of your, who are some of your favourite coaches going around? Yeah, again, I, from what I read and I have come into contact with a couple of them or heard them speak. So um, Phil Jackson, again, basketball related yeah. with the Bulls and the Lakers. Um, yeah, just his approach was obviously different um, and, and highly successful and something that resonates with me. Um, then Carlo Ancelotti, who obviously in football has been coaching another number of clubs. I, I like how he, he's prepared to adapt his style to fit different cultures, so he's coached in a number of different countries in, in football and soccer. Um, Graham Henry, I think you can't help but be impressed with, um, again, even a recent article with him back onto learning is to talking about you know how much he's changed as a coach and yeah. realised has gone from the typical autocratic command and control style to, to arguably, you know, obviously one of the most player-centred and, and player-led programs in the world and, and the results are on the board um, to uh, probably from Australia, Rick Charlesworth, so yeah. hockey, obviously yeah. in Australia, a, a household name, maybe not so much elsewhere, but his, uh, his mix of experience is quite unbelievable really from medicine to politics to hockey to cricket to Aussie rules football for, for a couple of years. He just brings the incredible mix and I yeah. think that's a, that's a really interesting area in coaching is Obviously, having experience and expertise in your sport or sport in general, but also a diversity of experience is actually, I think, closely wound up with with expert coaching. So, yeah, yeah. he's a good example yeah, of that. Yeah, absolutely. You're dealing with human beings, so having a diversity yeah. of experience is key. Um, 
Yeah, just on on Phil Jackson, I read his book Eleven Rings, and I got so much out of that. Uh, I thought that was, and I'm not, I don't even like basketball. I, I I can't I can't watch a game of basketball to save my life. But um, I, I found that that autobiography was was fantastic, and yeah, and Graham Henry's story is really interesting. It's quite quite typical of he's a former teacher, former headmaster. It's quite I read his autobiography too, um, but don't tell anyone. Um, but it's quite typical of teachers to come from to come from that or authoritarian kind of background, mm. and then have to realize, hey, this doesn't exactly work doing it this way. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. great. Okay, and um, and then some. Uh, who are some uh, coaches who are kind of chipping away in the trenches uh, that you think deserve mention? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I can pick out anyone, Andy. I, I, but I am, you know, encouraged by. I come into contact with a lot of good, like directly or online, whether I, what I think and sense of some really good young coaches in football or soccer, yeah. but you know also rugby and, and other sports, and and I sense that you know they could could make a really valuable contribution if given the opportunity. Yeah, but yeah. you know that some of them don't have the professional high level playing background. I still just worry a bit whether they're going to get the opportunity that they maybe deserve. Um, but, you know, arguably if they do generally deserve it, the opportunity will come at some point. So actually, I'm, I'm encouraged by, yeah, a number of young coaches who are developing, you know, what you might call all-round skills in understanding people and understanding learning and, and those types of things. Yeah, that's great. Fantastic. All right, well, uh, thanks very much for, for joining us. Um, it was great, great having a chat. I've got a... I've got a notepad full of notes that I can uh, put in with my other notepad full of notes when we first <laughs> chatted. Um, but yeah, this is, it was great for me. It really refreshed a lot of the ideas we'd worked on previously, and hopefully the listeners got a got a bunch out of it. So really appreciate you coming on the on the show, Mark. Cheers. Not a problem, mate. And uh, go the Wallabies. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. See you, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com. Until next time, Keep sharing ideas to make the game better.